Uh, Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Once again, that's Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. One of the greatest survival stories of all time uh, comes to us from Antarctica. It's the story of Douglas Mawson. Born May 5th, 1882 in West Yorkshire, England, Mawson grew up in Australia, where he graduated in 1902 with a Bachelor in Engineering from the University of Sydney. Mawson soon took up an interest in geology. He served as a geologist on an expedition to the New Hebrides Islands in 1903, uh, even discovering a mineral there that he named Davidite. He then later joined Ernest Shackleton on his Nimrod expedition to the Antarctic in 19, uh, from 1907 through 1909. During that expedition, Mawson and a small band of others became the first men to climb a volcano named Mount Erebus. They also became the first men to journey to the magnetic South Pole, which is not to be confused with the geographic South Pole. All in all, you could say that in 1911, at the age of 29, Mawson was a rising young scientist and explorer with a bright future ahead of him. 1911, that was the year that he set out to lead his own expedition to Antarctica. An expedition that would be called the Australasian Antarctic Expedition. Uh, The purpose of that expedition was to journey to a section of Antarctica directly south of Australia, which was almost entirely unexplored, and carry out a series of geographical and scientific studies there. Mawson and his team boarded the S.Y. Aurora in December of 1911 and landed in a place called Cape Denison in January of 1912. Cape Denison, we now know today, is the windiest sea level location on the planet. Average wind speeds come in at around 50 miles per hour with gusts topping out at around 200 miles per hour. That's the equivalent of a strong F4 tornado. Still, the expedition pressed on. It was to be conducted by five different parties in total. Mawson and two others formed a three-man sledge team that was to conduct a survey to the east of the main base camp beginning late in the year in 1912. At first, the survey was going rather smoothly, but five weeks in, disaster struck. Mawson was traveling with a Swiss skiing champion and a British infantryman Mawson was on his sledge. The skier was out in front of them scouting the conditions of the ice, and the infantry was jogging next to a second sledge when they crossed over a hidden crevasse. The weight of both the skier and Mawson's sledge were uh, distributed enough over the snow bridge crossing the crevasse that they were able to cross safely, but sadly, the infantryman's weight penetrated it. He and six of the party's best dogs, along with most of their rations and several other essential items, plunged down into the crevasse, never to be seen again. Suddenly, Mawson and his companion found himself, themselves 300 miles from base camp in an incredibly forbidding landscape 
with only a week's worth of provisions and no tent. They immediately realized what they had to do. They turned around. <laughs> the first stop on their journey was to go back for a tent they had left behind some 27 hours away. They traveled nonstop. After gathering the tent and a couple of other items, they began making their way to base camp. Only now the problem was the lack of food. Before long, they determined to start eating some of their remaining sled dogs, which they mainly fed to the rest of the dogs to keep them moving. Little did they know that husky liver contains extremely high levels of vitamin A, and extremely high levels of vitamin A can cause liver damage in humans. Unfortunately, Mawson's companion found the dog's muscle tissue too difficult to eat, so he ate a lot of this liver, and before long he descended into madness, before he too died. Mawson would have to travel the remaining 100 miles to base camp alone. Still, he pressed on. The dogs were all gone by this point, and so Mawson cut the sledge in, his sledge in two, crafted a kind of sail out of some extra cloth, and resumed his journey. By this point, his hair was falling out. There were open sores all over his face and body. At one point, the soles of his feet literally fell off. He simply taped them back on. Yes, he taped them back on and kept going. Mawson was about 800 miles from base camp when disaster struck yet again. This time he was crossing a crevasse when the snow underneath gave way, and Mawson fell into the pit. And as he fell, the sledge caught on the surface of the hole he had made, and due to the safety harness he was wearing, suspended him there 14 feet below the surface. Mawson would later recall, Below was a black chasm. Exhausted, weak, and chilled, for my hands were bare and pounds of snow had gotten inside my clothing, I hung with the firm conviction that all was over except the passing. It would be but the work of a moment to slip the harness, then all the pain and toil would be over. You could imagine how bleak things were looking for Mawson in that moment. He had less than a week to make it back to base camp before the Aurora's scheduled departure. At that point, even if he did make it back, he would essentially be marooned in Antarctica with no supplies. In reality, perhaps the only reason to even attempt climbing out of that pit would be to leave his diaries in a place where someone could find them and someday learn the story of him and his companions. According to Mawson, he then remembered a line from a poem by Robert Service. It reads like this, Just have one more try. It's dead easy to die. It's the keeping on living that's hard. And with that, Mawson began to climb. It took every ounce of his remaining strength, but eventually he found himself on the surface, exhausted but alive. Two weeks later, Mawson assumed his fate was sealed. He was still fighting just on the hope that he might make it back to base camp so that later people could find his diaries when suddenly, unexpectedly, he came across a cloth-covered stash of food. It was left behind by a search party who had been there only a few hours before. And it told him that the Aurora was waiting for him. There was hope for his survival after all. Mawson was now a mere 28 miles from Camp Denison. But he was in such a weakened state and the conditions were so harsh that it took him another 10 days to get there. 
Once he arrived, the bad news was that the Aurora had left. He had missed the boat home by only a matter of hours. The good news, however, was that six of his colleagues had decided to remain behind to search for him and his companions. It was now too late for the Aurora to return. Mawson would have to spend another winter in that windy wasteland known as Cape Denison. But he had survived. He had and he would eventually make it home. Mawson sent news of his survival to, to the departing Aurora via wireless telegraph. His message was simply this. Deeply regret delay, only just managed to reach Hutt. He would die at his home in Australia some 45 years later. It's just simply a remarkable story. One wonders where anyone could find the grit and the stamina to survive an ordeal like that and to do it with such humility and even gratitude. One might ask the same question of the Apostle Paul. I know we've shared the, I've shared the list before, I think a couple of times while we've been here in Philippians, but you look at what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 11, and he gives even a guy like Douglas Mawson a run for his money. Five times, he says, he received from the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day adrift at sea. He says, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And yet in spite of all of this, like Douglas Mawson, Paul kept going. I mean, he nearly gets stoned to death in the one town, picks himself up, brushes himself off, and then moves on to the next. How? Where is that kind of stamina, that kind of endurance coming from? Where does he find the strength to keep fighting for the gospel after all of that? That's what we're going to discover in this morning's passage. I said last week that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I said it's simply unavoidable. Given a long enough time frame, we will all suffer for the sake of Christ. It's very easy for me to imagine, therefore, that many of you have suffered for your faith before. And perhaps you've not suffered to the extent that Paul has suffered, but you've suffered for your faith. You've experienced hardship in the pursuit of righteousness. And if so, then I would imagine that there have probably been moments when you've felt like Mawson did as he hung from his sled, staring down into the abyss. Just a quick slip of the harness. You know, just a little compromise here or there. Just a very short and quick denial of the faith. And all the suffering's over. Perhaps the situation was even so bleak that you even wondered what the point would be in trying to press on. Maybe you thought, I'm never going to change anyone's mind. Nothing's going to come of any of this fight. So even if I do survive, what's the point? What's the purpose in this suffering? And, and you considered giving up. 
Where do you find the strength to persevere in that kind of a situation? Paul's going to tell us this morning, and he's going to tell us from Philippians 4, 10 through 13. You see, as Paul writes this passage, he writes as a persecuted man to persecuted men. He himself is sitting under house arrest in Rome, about to stand trial before the most powerful man on the planet, and he's writing to people suffering a conflict which, though undefined, is somehow still very similar to his own. And as Paul writes, they're in two very different conditions circumstantially. Paul has just received a gift from the Philippians. He's, uh, they've sent him a financial contribution to relieve his suffering. And, and this, as Paul anticipates, that his trial is about to turn out in his favor and he'll be released from prison. Meaning Paul's situation is very similar to that moment that Mawson found the cloth-covered stash of food. It's a time when Paul senses that his deliverance from suffering is near. The Philippians, on the other hand, some of them have apparently, they feel like they're hanging over the abyss. And they're wondering, do we just slip the harness? Why not just make it all go away? When Paul writes these next words, he writes to tell them how he manages to climb back up the rope in that scenario. And he does it both to encourage them about his circumstances, as well as to encourage and instruct them about theirs and tell them to keep pressing on. It's a wonderful passage. One I told you last week is cherished by Christians in every station of life throughout the ages and is a passage that I hope can encourage you to persevere in your witness of the gospel here this morning. Let's go ahead and read it together and let's read it in its context. Once again, the passage we're looking at is Philippians 4, 10 through 13. But let's read it in its context, starting in verse 10 and continuing through verse 20. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the, go of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our focus for today is going to be what Paul says in verses 11 through 13. That's where he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
That's where we start to learn how Paul managed to keep fighting for the gospel. The reason why I had us read that text in its context, starting in verse 10, continuing through verse 20, is to help you get a sense of the setting for those words. When we get down to this passage, you could almost say that we're getting back to the very purpose of this letter. If you recall, I've said that Paul really writes this letter as a response to, his, to this financial support he's received from the Philippians while under house arrest in Rome. And in that respect, you could almost compare it to a newsletter that you might receive from a missionary. Paul's writing to update the Philippians and, quote, tell them where the money is going, so to speak. Only he's not doing it in any effort to drum up more support, as I think we'll see in a moment. Instead, he's doing it because of the great affection that he has for the Philippians and the close bonds that they share with one another. Basically, the Philippians sent this money because they're worried about Paul. And Paul writes them back both to thank them for their support and let them know that he's doing okay. Really, he says, I'm doing just fine. Better than you might think. Now, Paul is Paul, right? And so when he hears that there is division going on in the church in Philippi, he can't just let that slide. Again, the affection between Paul and the Philippians is mutual. And so when he hears from Epaphroditus that things are not going as well for the saints in Philippi as they are for him, when he hears that they're experiencing the same kind of trials that he is, only they're not handling them as well as he is, Paul isn't going to just stand by and do nothing. No, he's going to try to do something about it. Even while he's under house arrest, he's going to try to do something to help them. And we saw this back in chapters 1 and 2. He already has plans to visit the Philippians personally just as soon as he's released. He has plans to send Timothy before that just as soon as he's able. And in the meantime, he sent Epaphroditus back to them with this letter, which not only updates them about his situation, but which also provides them with some instructions on how to navigate the difficulties that they're facing for Christ. It's a fantastic demonstration of Paul's pastoral heart and what, a, what true pastoral care looks like in action. Well, over the past several months, we've been dealing with this portion of the letter that has to do with Paul's instructions to the Philippians, the counsel that he has to share with them on how to deal with the interpersonal conflicts that are going to occur in the church in the midst of these trials. But now we return to the portion of the letter where Paul responds to the gift. He's already given them his missionary update back in chapter 1. He's transitioned from that into a discussion of their circumstances. And so now he returns back to their concern for him, and he ends the letter on a high note as he expresses his gratitude to them for the gift they've sent him. The only problem is that this puts Paul in a rather difficult position. Anyone who's ever served in pastoral ministry can know what I'm talking about here. Someone comes up after a message and they tell you, you know, the message was wonderful. They say it helped them tremendously. And, and you want to share in that excitement. You want to receive their gratitude and let them know that what they're saying is encouraging. Basically, you don't want to squash their enthusiasm. But you also don't want it across, want it to come across either that you think you're pretty special too or that you're begging for further compliments. So what do you do? How do you say thank you? I can't, I can't tell you enough 
how much that encourages me to hear you say that because that's exactly why I worked so hard this week. I was hoping it would help you. How do you say that without at the same time making them feel like they're obligated to come back and tell you the same thing again next week? This kind of struggle is further amplified when you're talking about financial contributions. And especially from a people who you know are themselves struggling financially. You know that it was incredibly hard for them to support you and that it clearly means a lot to them to give you that support. And so you want to recognize their sacrifice and let them know it was worth it. And yet at the same time, as a pastor, you don't want to be enriched at the expense of your people. That's something that false shepherds do, right? They get fat off the sheep. That's not what true shepherds do. They don't eat the sheep, right? They feed them. It's the same way for the sincere pastor. He doesn't go into the ministry for profit. He does it because he wants to help the sheep, meaning he doesn't want to live high on the hog while his people suffer. Actually, that kind of thing is going to bother him. And so this kind of pastor, he can struggle to know how to appropriately express how to appropriately express his gratitude when his people do sacrifice for him while at the same time letting them know, please don't feel obligated to do this. I want you to take care of yourselves. And it's the same way here with Paul. Paul, it would seem, especially felt this burden to not take from the churches he ministered to. In fact, it's why he tended to support himself on the mission field. He considered it a privilege to offer the gospel free of charge. And he didn't want the people he preached to to think that he was in any way trying to profit off them through the preaching of this gospel. In short, he wasn't doing it for the money, right? He was doing it for the benefit of the people that he was preaching to. Well, we learn from 2 Corinthians that the church at Philippi is not a particularly rich congregation. And yet they're an incredibly faithful one. Even in the midst of their own suffering, they've found a way to support Paul. And Paul wants to thank them for that without making them feel obligated. Look at how he goes back and forth here. As he tries to find the words to let the Philippians know how genuinely grateful he is for their gift without at the same time making them feel bad over it. He starts verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You guys hear that? We can, we can see down in verses 14 through 20 that the Philippians have been one of the very few churches uh, that have been faithful to support Paul since their very first contact with him. Well, there's apparently been some time that's passed since the Philippians have been able to give him any time, kind of support. And so on the one hand, Paul wants to let them know how much he's been encouraged by the renewal of their, their relationship. He wants them to know that their support does matter, that he has felt its absence, without at the same time having it come across like he's rebuking them for not getting him something sooner. Again, you know how that works, right? If you act like you don't need someone's support or that it hasn't helped you, or if someone stops helping you and you don't even acknowledge it, then that can offend them because it comes across like you're not grateful for their help. If on the other hand, you respond with a, finally, I've been waiting for this, what took you so long? Then it comes across like you're, you feel entitled to their help, or that you don't think they're making a sincere effort to help you. Basically, again, it comes across like you're not grateful. 
That's exactly what Paul's wrestling with. He's trying to express his genuine gratitude for their gift and the sincere encouragement he's received in knowing that they haven't forgotten about him without it coming across like he's impatient or entitled. He says, I can't say enough how encouraging it is to know that you still care about me. How genuinely helpful this gift is. What relief it brought me. And then he kind of rushes in after that. Not, not that I didn't think you cared before. I, I know you did. You always have. And so I know you would have helped sooner if you could have. You just lacked the opportunity. He's trying to let them know that their absence of this support was felt and that their gift is truly meaningful to him without it coming across as either expected or late. To put it another way, Paul is receiving this gift exactly for what it is. A gift and not a payment. It's not something that's owed to him. But that doesn't mean he doesn't notice either when the Philippians stop sending their support. Their contribution is meaningful. However, this presents Paul with another dilemma. How does he communicate all of this without at the same time making these dear brothers and sisters feel guilty then for not sending him something sooner? Again, you can see the tact this requires. If Paul doesn't say thank you, then it comes across as ungrateful. But if he does... And after such a long break in their support, then it can come across like he's really been waiting on a gift like this, that he's even been going through additional suffering because of the lack of it, and that can actually make the Philippians feel bad that they didn't do a better job of getting something to him sooner. Again, they love Paul. They're stressed out by the news of his arrest. And so although they literally couldn't send something sooner than this, if they hear that Paul is overjoyed by the gift because of how great he's been suffering, they're still going to go away feeling at least a little bit guilty that they didn't try to do more than what they did and sooner in order to help their friend. And that's the setting for what Paul says in verses 11 through 13. He's countering the, the notion that his gratitude is rooted in the fact that this gift supplied some need that he was lacking, some desire that without which he could not be happy. That he was suffering up until the point that he received this gift. All of that would carry the potential to make the Philippians feel very guilty for not doing something sooner to help him. And so Paul explains verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, now, of course, that is going to raise the question. So if he's not thankful because of the gifts supplied, you know, some urgent need that he was lacking, then what's he thankful for? And Paul's going to provide the answer to that question as he continues this portion of the letter next week. He's going to clarify why he's grateful that the Philippians have revived their concern for him because the rejoicing over the gift, it is genuine. He's not just paying lip service here. He's not just being courteous. There's a real excitement over what they send him. He's going to clarify it next week. And in that clarification, we're going to see more and more of Paul's pastoral heart unfold. In the meantime, I want us to examine why Paul wasn't dependent on this gift. After all, do you know what this would be like? This would be like Douglas Mawson coming upon that cloth-covered stash of food and then later telling his colleagues, I just want to let you know, I was overjoyed when I discovered the food you left for me, but not because I was hungry. 
I mean, if he said that, right, you'd think to yourself, what are you talking about? You just trudged through nearly 300 miles of bitter cold on a week's worth of food, and you're going to tell me that you weren't hungry? How's that possible? And if it were Paul that were answering that question, he would say, well, it's not that I wasn't hungry. I was. It's just that that wasn't what was keeping me going. It wasn't the food that kept my muscles moving. And that makes one wonder, well, then what was? What were, where were you getting that strength from? And Paul tells us. And what he says is not only an invaluable lesson for the Philippians as they struggle with this inner turmoil in the midst of their suffering, not only does Paul's answer show them by example where to draw the strength that will enable them to be at peace with one another, but it's incredibly invaluable to us as well as we try to live on mission for Christ. I've said that I've called our time in Philippians the evangelistic psyche because in this letter we get to see perhaps better than anywhere else what made the second greatest evangelist who ever lived tick. Well, in that light, this passage right here is perhaps one of the most important passages in the entire epistle because what we see right here is where Paul got his strength from. How he managed to get rejected in one area, pick himself up, and then keep on going. And if you're going to learn to be faithful in, in your mission as Paul was, then you need to learn to think like Paul. You need to adopt these same priorities. So how did Paul manage to keep going? I think we can break his answer down into two parts. And I would label these two parts, first, a character trait, and then second, a cause. Paul possesses a particular character trait, trait that enables him to endure. And he explains that this character trait is rooted in a particular source or cause. The character trait is contentment. Contentment. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Paul, Paul follows up this statement in verse 10 where he says that he rejoiced over the fact that the Philippians' concern for him has been revived by clarifying... Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So how does Paul manage to navigate this tension between expressing the fact that the Philippians met a real need while at the same time letting them know that they shouldn't feel bad for helping him sooner? It's by explaining that, yes, he was indeed lacking provision physically. However, that's not where his happiness comes from. They did supply him with something that he was genuinely lacking, but Paul's joy is not based on whether or not that need was supplied, since he's learned how to be content in every, any and every circumstance. The Philippians should not only be encouraged by this news, they should be instructed by it as well. After all, this is what it looks like when a mature Christian suffers for Christ. In fact, do you remember back in chapter 3 where Paul shared the way that he thought about suffering? And then he told the Philippians, let those of us who are mature think this way. Well, it's notable here that two times Paul says that he learned this particular ability. In other words, Paul didn't just figure out how to be content overnight. It was a character trait 
that was developed over time in Paul as he grew in his faith, meaning this is an aspect of his maturity since it is something that developed in him. And so if the mature are to think about suffering like Paul does, then I think we can add this to the list. They are content in any and every circumstance. It's interesting, I would venture that if you asked a hundred different people what makes a person strong or how they would describe someone who is strong, I doubt hardly anyone would say contentment as a part of their answer. Usually when we think of strong people, we think of bravery or determination or ambition. We may even think of someone who's physically strong. Essentially, when we think of strength, what comes to mind is someone who can bend the world to their desires through sheer willpower, not someone who's simply happy in whatever circumstances they're dealt. That sounds a lot like softness. It sounds like mush. They just sort of go with the flow. Where's the strength in that? And yet there's a resiliency and contentment that's underestimated, a resiliency that allows a person to bend to their circumstances without breaking. I think of a man I met several years ago, one of the most remarkable men I've ever personally met. He was a former Navy SEAL who at over the age of 40 decided to change military branches and become an Army Ranger. And what was so remarkable about this man was that he was one of the most good-natured and kind-hearted men I had ever met in my life. Even further, he never bragged about his accomplishments or anything like that. Like you think most people would do if they had done the things he had done, you know, sort of drop breadcrumbs here and there in the conversation until you finally ask them, what do you do? And then they tell you, well, you know, I was a Navy SEAL when that happened, but now actually I'm an Army Ranger. He never did that. No, the only way you ever discovered who this guy was and what he had done was if someone else had told you about it. I was really stunned to discover that such a seemingly gentle and easygoing man could withstand such rigorous training. And so one day I told him about it. I said, I just don't get it. How could a guy as nice as you be a Navy SEAL? I just assumed that the SEALs were a group of cocky alpha males, right? And you know what he told me? He said, oh, those guys rarely make it through training. And he explained, he said, in special forces, you live and die as a team. You just won't survive on your own. So a lot of what they're looking for during your examination is to see how well you can function as a teammate under stress, how well you react to your peers when you've been without food and sleep and your body aches. And those guys usually can't handle it. They stop working as a team. In other words, what made this guy fit for the kind of extreme stress that he had to undergo first as a Navy SEAL and then later as an Army Ranger was that easygoing nature. In short, he could adapt to his situation. He could go without sleep and food and still keep his thinking clear and remain focused on his objective because he didn't think he needed these things in order to be happy. One thinks of the structures they build today to withstand earthquakes. You know, engineers have learned that if you want a, a building like a skyscraper to withstand an earthquake 
or say a large bridge to withstand high winds, you don't make the structure rigid. You make it flexible. You allow it to bend. That way when the earthquake hits or the winds come howling through, it adapts to the circumstances instead of fighting against them. It's the rigid structures that break under those conditions, not the flexible ones. They survive. This is the power of contentment. It's not weakness, as some suppose. It's not even a matter of just simply going with the flow. Contentment, rather, provides one with the ability to pursue their objectives independently of the obstacles created by either distraction or discouragement. Let me say that one more time. Contentment provides one with the ability to pursue their objectives independently of the obstacles created either by distraction or discouragement. It gives a person resilience in the midst of suffering and persistence in the midst of prosperity. It makes them consistent in their conduct. While everyone else is swinging back and forth in the circumstances of the moment, they don't budge because they're being driven by an inner joy that's not dependent on the fortune of the moment. That's strength, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to know how Paul managed to keep his course and proclaim Christ in any and every circumstance, this is how. He learned in whatever situation he was in to be content. He says here that he knows how to be brought low. The word here is tapenao. It's the same word that we encountered just a couple of weeks back when Peter exhorted his readers to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. If you remember, I said that the word can literally mean to lower. And that's what Paul is saying here. He knows how to be humbled or brought low. In context, he's talking about the humiliation that one often associates with being poor, with being dependent on the generosity of folks like the Philippians to get by. Paul's learned how to experience that sort of weakness in need and still be satisfied. He's also learned how to abound, he says. I think this is probably an overlooked element in this passage. When we think about the power or importance of contentment, we probably think of it in the context of suffering. We immediately think of the person who's happy in spite of their want. And when we do this, we lose sight of the fact that more often than not, it isn't suffering that causes people to walk away from the faith as much as it is prosperity. Do you want to know why you're afraid to share your faith? It's not because of how little you have. It's actually because of how much you have. You're actually very comfortable and you're afraid of losing it. I tell you what, watch what happens to Christians when you send, uh, you know, send them on a plane, put them in the mission field on a short-term mission trip and ask them to share their faith. Suddenly they become very bold. They'll share their faith in foreign countries in ways they never would at, would at home. And do you know why that is? It's because they don't have anything to lose on the short-term mission trip. If someone rejects them, that's okay. They don't have to live with it. After all, in a week or two, they'll be back home and never have to live with the consequences of that rejection. It's much, much different in their hometown, and most especially in small towns like ours, right? Listen, this is the story of men like the rich young ruler and Demas. 
Just think of your own life. When do you find that your relationship with God is closest? I'd venture that for most of you, it's when you're suffering. When you're suffering, when you're in need, suddenly you find yourself drawing very near to God. Even unbelievers will do this. Someone who never prays will suddenly turn to God and start praying when their life starts falling apart. As the saying goes, right, there are no atheists in foxholes. It would seem that we are actually very prone to turn to God once we feel that our back is up against the wall and we have no other recourse. Basically, we're often eager to turn to God once we become convinced that we've exhausted every other option. And when you think back on those moments, Christian, do you struggle for contentment when that happens? Do you find yourself struggling to be happy when you're brought low and walking closely with the Lord? I'd venture to say that the answer is no. Of course, that's not to say that you aren't still hurting, and yet the reality is that those are probably some of the sweetest moments that you'll ever experience in your life. I can say, quite honestly, that there have been times when I've been brought low, and I've actually found myself praying, Lord, please don't take the hurt away. I like it here, and I'm afraid of what I'll do once you take it away. That's because it's actually much harder to abound it's very easy to turn away from God when you have other things in your life to make you happy. Like the nine lepers in Luke 17, it's very easy to cry out to Jesus, Master, have mercy on us when we're sick. It takes a special kind of person to come back to Jesus like the tenth leper and give him thanks after they've been healed. That's not to say that we're truly happier when we abound and take delight in these other things. It's just that it takes effort to nurture a relationship with God. And like water, we tend to take the path of least resistance. So if I can get a little bit of a buyer's high through that next purchase, um, you know, uh, maybe I'll just choose to do that rather than spend time in the Word and in prayer. Even if it is short-lived, the happiness that comes from that, because it's easier. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Paul is like the 10th leper. He's not only learned how to be brought low, how to face hunger in need, he's learned the secret of facing plenty and abundance as well. He's learned how to prosper and still not lose sight of the objectives that he has in Christ Jesus. This should grab our attention. What Paul is saying is that his joy doesn't come from his circumstance. It comes from somewhere else. So thanks sort of no thanks at the same time. And the Philippians were certainly kind, as Paul is going to say in verse 14, and there's most definitely a sense in which they've refreshed him as he's going to explain down in verses 14 through 20. But it's not because of what they probably think. It's not the money that's helped Paul. Paul wasn't particularly hurting because of the want he was experiencing before, and so he's not particularly overjoyed because of the abundance that's been, been supplied through their gift either. It's just not what drives Paul. It's not where his joy comes from. Friends, this is how Paul manages to be so resilient in the proclamation of the gospel. It comes from the fact that he's not dependent on the care package of food and the note telling him that he's about to be delivered. It makes me think of Jesus in John 4 after his discussion with the woman at the well. You recall that story, I'm sure. The, the, the disciples have left for food and they come back. And they're urging Jesus to eat. And what does Jesus say? He tells them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. 
And they're going, what? Has anyone brought him something to eat? They think, you know, Jesus literally has a secret stash of food hidden under his tunic or something like that. And that's not the point, right? Jesus is telling them that there's something else that drives him, something else that gives him satisfaction, something more than food. That thing being, as he goes on to explain, to do the will of the Father who sent him. It's the same way with Paul. The Philippians have sent him money, and Paul's response is to say, thanks. But I got to tell you, I have riches that you don't know about. Something else is keeping him going. <laughs> what is that? Again, the answer to that question is incredibly relevant to us who struggle with abounding. Again, keep in mind what Paul is saying here. He's speaking less at this point of the secret of facing hunger and more about the secret of facing plenty. He's just received this gift and he's saying, thank you, but I want you to understand, I don't need this. This isn't going to change my agenda. He's content in the abounding just as much as he is in the need. That sort of a response is incredibly relevant to those of us who struggle to remain faithful to our mission in the midst of our prosperity. So what does Paul say? Where is this resiliency coming from? What's the cause of this joy and contentment? We find the answer in verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The answer is Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the source of Paul's contentment. And if you are going to stand firm for Christ, if you're going to proclaim his name in any and every circumstance, including in your prosperity, then you too must receive this contentment that comes only from Christ. What does Paul mean here? Just, just how is it that Christ strengthens Paul? That's certainly a question that we need to answer, right? Because if we're going to receive the contentment that comes from Jesus Christ, then we certainly need to know how to receive it from him, don't we? So what does Paul mean here? Just precisely how does Christ strengthen him? I think there are two possible ways that we could answer that question. First, we could say that this is a supernatural empowering, or perhaps a better way of saying it, since the whole natural, supernatural thing is almost a kind of false dichotomy, we could say that this is a passive empowering. Meaning this is a strengthening that comes to Paul without Paul's effort or apart from Paul's effort, independent of his effort. So it's something that happens to Paul. He's a passive object in this whole operation and Christ alone is doing the work. No doubt, I think there's certainly an element of this going on here. It's notable. You go to the Olivet Discourse, for instance, and as Jesus describes the persecution that the disciples will experience during the Great Tribulation, he flatly tells them, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises to actively or supernaturally empower them to stand in that moment. I've had people ask me before, how do we as Christians prepare ourselves for persecution? And my answer to them always is, you can't. And if you think that your preparation is going gonna, is gonna to be what helps you to stand, then I have to tell you, you're going to fall. There's really only one way 
that a Christian can endure such severe trials, and that's if God supplies them with the grace needed to stand firm. We simply don't have it in us. Just ask Peter, right, how far his self-confidence got him when he was tested. When Satan wants to sift you, there's only one person who can protect you from his schemes, and that's the one person who's already defeated him, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, I think there's a sense in which Paul literally means, Christ strengthens me. He enables me to find a joy and contentment that I honestly can't explain apart from his supernatural work in my heart. However, I think there's a natural explanation here as well, or again, to use better terminology, an active one. Meaning, I think there is an element where Paul is striving for this kind of endurance, where his mind is actively engaged in the process, where he can point and say, this, is, this right here is how Christ helps me. It's like we see in the preceding verses. Paul exhorts the Philippians to, quote, think on these things, because then the God of peace will be with them. I think it's the same way here. Christ is the one who's doing the strengthening in a ways that Paul would probably have a hard time explaining, but he's doing so as Paul engages his mind in what he knows about Christ. What would those, th uh, those things be? The first, of course, would be the sovereignty of Christ. You look at how Jesus himself encountered suffering as the perfect man, and he constantly interpreted any suffering he encountered as a circumstance orchestrated by his Father, which made it a trial to be embraced and to even rejoice in. The Garden of Gethsemane, for instance, he prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Later on, as he's standing before Pilate, Pilate demands an answer and tells him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And of course, Jesus answers, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had be given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He recognizes that Pilate's authority is derived from God. And in this, he finds uh, the, the strength to submit to this circumstance because it comes from his father. The scripture tells us that Jesus kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly in the face of persecution. And it's the same way with Paul. After all, Paul was the one that wrote it, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we know that he counted on the sovereignty of God generally in these kinds of situations. And you take into account what he says towards the end of chapter 3 of how he's awaiting for the appearance of his Savior who is about to subject all things to himself. And I think you can also say that he counted on the sovereignty of God the Son specifically as well. I mean, Jesus had, had personally announced how much Paul would have to suffer for his sake. He even personally directed Paul to places like Philippi where Paul then suffered for his faith. And so Paul took comfort in the fact that in hunger or in plenty... He was exactly where Jesus wanted him to be. And if that's where Jesus wanted him to be, then that was the right place to be. There was nothing better to look for, not even when he was sitting under house arrest in Rome. Like we saw back in chapter 1, Jesus used even that circumstance for the advancement of the gospel. And so Paul could rest in that knowledge and be content. Second, and related to this point, Paul took hope from the eternal fruit 
that was born by this gospel ministry. Uh, I think we'll see this in greater detail next week, but just like I said earlier this morning, most pastors don't go into the ministry for the money. They go into the ministry because they love God. And they want to honor Him, and they do it because they love people, and they want to share the riches of God with them. This means that there's no greater joy for these men than to see disciples first made and then flourishing in the faith. It's the same way with Paul. Again, Paul answers the Philippians' concern over him, saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He tells them, actually, you wouldn't believe this, guys, but the gospel is advancing further with me under house arrest than if it wasn't. I wasn't. Translation, I'm doing just fine. So Paul is, is driven by a zeal for the glory of Christ. And since Christ can advance the gospel either through his suffering or through his abundance, Paul is able to be content in either circumstance. One isn't inherently better than the other. Christ strengthens him through the fruit that he supplies in this sense. And then third and finally, as we've seen so often throughout this letter, Paul is strengthened by the hope that he's found in Christ. You go back to chapter 3, for instance, and this is even what drives Paul into this suffering. He wants to participate in a life like Christ's, and that requires being conformed to a death like his. It's like what we saw last week in 1 Peter 4, both the life that provokes persecution and the willingness to endure it is evident, uh, evidence of the Spirit's work in the Christian. And it confirms their calling and status in Christ and the hope they have in heaven. And with this thought in mind, Paul isn't content to rest when he abounds. And neither is he crushed by the suffering that follows his proclamation of Christ. The hope of heaven both drives him to preach when he's facing plenty and then comforts him when he suffers for the same. Essentially, the treasure he seeks is in heaven, and this pushes him to lift his eyes up above his circumstances and keep both his prosperity and his poverty in the right perspective and see them as very trifling things. This is the second way that Christ strengthened Paul. He not only empowered Paul passively through the work of the Holy Spirit, but he also did so as Paul actively engaged his mind to be transformed by the reality of Christ's gospel. If you are going to keep running, Christian, if you're going to endure and proclaim Jesus in any and every circumstance, and you need to find a contentment that's driven by this same way of thinking, you need to be strengthened by the sovereignty, the fruit, and the hope of Jesus Christ. As we start to wrap up here this morning, I realize that it's possible that it can sound like I'm laying a burden on you. As I tell you to stand firm and to set all your hope on Christ Jesus. After all, what we're talking about here requires letting go of some idols. And that can be a very hard and very exhausting thing to do if you've ever tried to do it. And so can I just close 
by saying that if this all sounds like a burden to you, if this sounds wearisome for me to be talking about exerting yourself in the proclamation of the gospel, if it sounds like work to suffer for Christ or sacrifice to stay on task even in the midst of abundance, can I just point out that Paul was incredibly happy in all of this? A number of years ago, my wife and I were discussing what it must look like to outsiders as we engaged in this church plant. Things weren't going so swell for us financially at the time. They're much better now, but they weren't so hot then. And we were pretty self-conscious about all that, uh, particularly as it related to our children. It maybe didn't look like we were doing very much to provide them with the very best life that we possibly could, at least not from the outside. As we discussed that, I turned to this passage and I pointed out what Paul says here. And I told Emily, what people don't understand is that we're trying to give our children that. At the end of the day, there are plenty of rich people out there with college educations who are absolutely miserable. So, so what if we can't pay for their college or if we can't get, leave them with a nice inheritance? The kind of contentment that Paul is talking about here transcends all of that. What a gift that would be to impart to them this ability to be content and happy in any and every circumstance. You can't put a price on that. You can't buy that kind of happiness. It's a gift that we receive through Christ Jesus and one that we model by our example. Friends, I'd say the same thing to you. It's not a burden that we're talking about here this morning, but a gift, an incredible gift. So don't hesitate, don't hold back. Instead, jump all in and learn from Paul the secret of Christian contentment and gospel-minded endurance. Let's pray.